Well, let's seek his face ourselves, one by one. Living Lord Jesus, thank you for seeing us and our deep, deep need and coming to rescue us. In the same way, right now, Lord Jesus, as an extension of that moment when you died on the cross, as an extension of the moment when you walk from the grave alive, take those moments in time right now and bring them as near and dear to us that we might adequately both understand and respond. So please, Lord Jesus, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, as you look at the front cover of your service sheet, you see Jesus facing a contemporary man. And we've taken that image to express the series of Sunday morning preachings all the way and into Easter. Through Lent and into Easter, the encounters that Jesus had with one individual or another. As we pointed out Wednesday night at our Ash Wednesday service, most of what Jesus had to say and the miracles he did were really interruptions in his life. They happened at times when people interceded, intercepted. One way or another, they came pleading for someone else or for themselves or just ran into Jesus rather randomly as he was passing by. But in those moments, the amazing Lord Jesus Christ, instead of exchanging the kind of facile comments that you and I pass from one to another, just surface comments as we chat on our way past each other, Jesus did stop, allowed himself to be interrupted, and spoke words of such power, or did actions of such power, that they became the Gospels, the teaching by which we have even put together our creeds. So incidental moments from the human point of view became God's moment to say things from the mouth of Jesus that have lived on as great truths forever. And this morning, as we look at Nicodemus, as the Greeks would say, Nicodemus, 
as we Westerners present it, Nicodemus. We have the most amazing account read very much in full for us. So brilliantly, too. And as we come to those moments of truth that Jesus communicated to this man Nicodemus, what we see is an honest seeker in Nicodemus. Someone really looking for answers and Jesus really giving him answers. Way beyond whatever I think Nicodemus thought were the issues. He went right after Nicodemus and he saw beyond the surface interruption which was real. He saw beyond the words by which Nicodemus began to engage him in conversation and went right to the heart of the matter as far as that man was concerned. And of course, what we see in that, what we hope to see in that, is how Jesus meets us. We have all kinds of surface issues. But Jesus knows not only those issues, but goes way beyond them to the heart of the matter. Take a look with me if you turn to page 6 to begin with, in your service sheet, or in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 3. You meet the man, Nicodemus. He is first described for us. Verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. That one verse tells you that Jesus, and he would have known this, just by the way Nicodemus looked when he came to speak with him, that Nicodemus was first a Pharisee. That is, the strictest of Jewish sects. Absolutely the very strictest. Who had taken the commandments of God and written them out in hundreds of legislative laws by which those commandments would be expressed in day-to-day living for the Pharisee. Pharisee in the first place did not mean hypocrite. When we speak of a Pharisee today, we call someone a Pharisee. We're implying that they're hypocrites. But the kind of legislation that they put together virtually forced everyone to become a hypocrite because no one could live up to it, and yet they wanted to look good and presented themselves as looking good. So he was first a Pharisee. Then it speaks about his being of the ruling elite, the Jewish ruling council, known as the Sanhedrin. So he wasn't just a religious leader in the sense that he was educated. He was a religious leader with the office, the central office of directing the Jewish people, as close as it would have gotten in those days 
to a Jewish parliament. It was the governing body of Judaism, and he was an elite leader. Then it goes on to tell you more about him. Verse 2, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, he honored him with the title of teacher. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now this tells us more of him by way of his character. I guess you know why he came at night. Because he didn't want to be seen with Jesus in public in daylight. In other words, while he was curious, he was very, very cautious. He wasn't about to get himself criticized by his fellow religious leaders or his fellow Pharisees by speaking with Jesus openly in broad daylight in front of anyone who might see him. So he comes quietly, cautiously, sneaking in at night under cover of darkness. I suppose you could add to cautious the word cowardly. He didn't have the courage to openly seek information. But he did come. He came at night and he acknowledged who Jesus was. He wasn't just cautious. He wasn't just curious. He was honest. He did acknowledge that what Jesus was doing was godly. No one could do what he was doing unless God were with him. The miraculous signs you are doing, he said, could not be done if God were not with him. So he's rather cowardly, really curious, and honest in his expression to Jesus that he, Jesus, was doing things that only God could pull off. And then you've got Jesus' response, already somewhat described by me as we made introduction. But verses through, excuse me, verses three through eight set the response of Jesus. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. That's as much as to say, now pin back your ears, Nicodemus, and listen to this. If Jesus is saying, I tell you the truth, he is underlining the authority and the authenticity of what he is about to say. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So whatever was the curious decision, discussion that... Nicodemus wanted to have in acknowledging that Jesus' teaching and healing was of God. Jesus did not get in 
engaged in the peripheral discussion. He knew Nicodemus's need, the real heartfelt need, the real and actual need, beyond any of the peripheral conversations that he might have had with Nicodemus. You might make note of this, but the close of chapter 2 of John, you've got this, verse 24 of chapter 2. Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. In other words, he knew the hearts of men. That's a prelude, in reality, to this conversation with Nicodemus. He knew his heart, even as he came in through the door, seeking a conversation at night. And his need was to understand, this was his real need, what it meant to be born again, and how one really does thereby enter into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Two huge things. How you get into heaven or the kingdom of God and the need to be born again as the answer to that, namely, this is how you enter the kingdom. You see what he says? No one can even see. Look at verse 3 again. You've got a pencil in your hand, you can underline it. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God, until he is born again. Look at verse 5. He says, I tell you the truth. Same amazing authoritative introduction. I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. So you can't even see or understand what the kingdom of God is and nor enter into it outside of this miraculous intervention by God that's described here as being born again or being born from above. That is a miraculous act that only God can pull off. To be born from above. Not born through human endeavor, ingenuity, Or anything else that's human. Because you're born of the Spirit of God in John chapter 1. In the introductory comments about the gospel. It speaks about how through believing and receiving Jesus. We'll come to that. One is born again not of the will of man. Not in any human dimension. But is born of God. Something God does. And it's as miraculous as the healings that Jesus performed. That a person could be transformed spiritually from the inside out. The explanation of that is in verse 5. Which I just read to you. I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Now that is not speaking about baptism. It's speaking about what water meant to Nicodemus and that is the ceremonial ritual cleansings that represented 
the ritual cleansing from sin, whether it's a sprinkling of feet, the washing of hands, and other liturgical rites that the Jews had. Not just to get rid of sin through the sacrificial system, not just to be made clean, though you need to be made clean. There's something more than just being forgiven. There's something more than just experiencing cleansing from sin. Until the Spirit of God enters in, we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. It really is a single transaction when you put your faith in Jesus. The forgiveness of sin and the Spirit of God entering in and are being born again, born from above. The way Jesus emphasizes the spiritual beyond this, com- this comment is exactly the emphasis that we're speaking of here. Look at it with me again. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. And he says no more about water. But verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Because the Spirit blows where he wills. So he takes this image of the Holy Spirit producing new birth. Clearly, the other interpretation of being born again is born from above. So it's not a matter of just getting rid of sin, though that's essential and necessary. As he said, no one can be born, to be born again and enter the kingdom is through the water of cleansing and through the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in going to the cross, accomplished the possibility of both of those. Go down to verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes in him should have eternal life. Now, Jesus uses an Old Testament example, an incident in the Old Testament, where the children wandering through the desert have been bitten by these serpents or snakes. And the remedy for that was to make a bronze snake on, on, and hoist it up on a pole, and all who looked to it were healed of those snake bites and lived. It wasn't just to look, but to look believing. And he uses that as the example of his being hoisted up 
on the cross. So it runs immediately to verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So when Jesus died on the cross, he died in the first place to pay the penalty for our sin, that we might look to him as a savior, that we might be cleansed from our sin. But the resurrected Lord Jesus comes to dwell in us. And so we invite him to come in. And when he comes in, we're born again of the Holy Spirit. So it's a dying Jesus who pays for our sins, takes our place. And it's the living Lord Jesus, resurrected, who comes into us to dwell in us. And give us a spiritual rebirth. That we're born again of his Holy Spirit. And as that is explained. In that nugget. Which is called the gospel in a nutshell. John chapter 3 and verse 16. That Jesus died for our sins. And that as we put our faith in him. We really look to him and surrender to him. He enters us and we receive the gift of eternal life. That we need not perish but have everlasting life. That is, need not go to hell and pay for our own sins. But by the grace of God and faith in Jesus Christ, go to heaven and experience eternal life. That eternal life begins the moment that Jesus comes in. I've been talking about the miracle of new birth as being born from above. As many of you know, in the early 90s, I was in and out of Russia and Ukraine preaching the gospel and other Soviet nations like Albania and Romania. I got a call in my kitchen several years after that. It was a woman the other end of the phone, and I immediately picked up that sort of Slavic dialect in her English, which I can, cannot imitate, but she said, is, that, is this the Reverend John Guest? I said, it is. She said, are you the John Guest who was speaking in Kiev at the Arca? There's a huge arch with a stone amphitheater around it where we were preaching night after night. I said, I am. She said, praise the Lord. She said, I was there. And in listening to you, I was born from above. 
she said, I'm Jewish. And Jesus, my Messiah, became my Savior. Here is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, who was Jewish. All the first believers were Jewish. The first disciples and apostles were Jewish. The 3,000 converted on the day of Pentecost were Jewish. Jerusalem was the initial headquarters of the church. Only through persecution were they dispersed and went everywhere preaching the gospel. Here in Kiev, born from above, miraculously, she had since then moved to the USA and taken the trouble to try and find me and let me know and to say thank you. Now Nicodemus himself is mentioned three times in John's Gospel and they're the only three mentions of him in the New Testament. The first we've just looked at, chapter 3. In chapter 7 he turns up as a member of the Sanhedrin, make note of this reference. It's uh, John chapter 7, verse 50. He turns up as a part of the Sanhedrin defending Jesus whom they were seeking to take by force and execute. The Sanhedrin was. This was early on. But they were planning to get rid of Jesus. And Nicodemus had the courage, as it said here, to ask this question. Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? He's speaking to his peers who were ignoring what the law that they said they were so fastidious to keep, ignoring what it really said, and they were out to destroy Jesus without first hearing him, giving him his day in court. Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him? to find out what he's doing and they replied they didn't answer that question they just poured scorn upon him are you from Galilee too look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee so are you a Galilean are you one of them and sad to say, Nicodemus did not speak up or say any more. He was shamed into silence. He had enough courage to identify himself with Jesus, but under pressure, immediately wilted and gave them no further answer after they had scorned him, made fun of him, ridiculed him. The next time he turns up is after the crucifixion. I would suppose in some sense really at 
the crucifixion. John chapter 19, verse 39. This is what it says. Later, Joseph Arathamia. Let me start that again. Later, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. Now, this is Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret believer for fear. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And verse 39, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus came with the aloes and myrrh and everything else that were necessary for the preparation of the body. So at that point, Nicodemus steps out into the open and is absolutely, irrevocably now committed to Jesus by that act. He comes with another cowardly believer who's a behind-the-scenes believer, and the two of them become overt and open, strong, visible believers who identify themselves with that dead body of Jesus, taking it and placing it in that tomb, a borrowed tomb, which Jesus only needed for three days. You see Nicodemus's journey from curiosity and a willingness to go ask the questions, like a genuine search for the truth, Clearly, he's moved into a believing position, at least intellectually, as he speaks up for Jesus amongst his peers, who out of hand are rejecting Jesus and setting to kill him. And then thirdly, openly confessing Christ and boldly connecting himself to Jesus. And I would venture to say that many of us see ourselves in that journey. That was certainly the case for me. I had been going to church when I went to hear Billy Graham. And I was reflecting on this. That the day I gave my life to Jesus. The morning of that day. I mentioned to one of the other engineering students. That I was going to go and hear Billy Graham. The man another student yet, there were three of us, who ended up coming with me to hear Billy Graham was standing there. His name was Richard Martin. But the man who I first described as hearing me say that I'm going to hear Billy Graham immediately poured out profanity upon profanity Foul-mouthing Billy Graham. I can't imagine what he knew about Billy Graham. Billy Graham was absolutely unknown other than the advertising throughout London. 
He was known to be a Christian preacher. That was what they were advertising. That was the deal. This guy whose last name really was Nutt, spelled K-N-U-T-T, who we used to call Nutter, Nutt, with foul profanities, heaped one upon another, spoke of Billy Graham in a defamatory way. I lost my temper. I don't ever remember losing my temper ever in my lifetime like I lost my temper that morning. And I was ready to slug Nut and smash him in the face. And as Richard Martin saw that developing, he said, Nut, if I were you, I would shut my mouth right now. And Nut did. And I've often been amazed that that was the very day that I ended up moving from being somebody associated with Jesus by my association with Billy Graham, just simply saying that I was going to hear him. This guy, bad-mouthing Billy Graham, And my coming to Graham's defense, and in effect to the Lord's defense, ready to slug this guy. That very evening with Richard Martin, because he came with me to hear Billy Graham, the two of us went forward to make a commitment to Christ. So I went from the curious, inquisitive one, listening in church, to hearing this man profane Billy Graham and my willingness to identify with Graham and Jesus in that, to committing my life, openly standing up and walking forward before my buddy in the first place, who then joined me, and anybody else who was standing there. I don't know where you are on that journey. But obviously the place to be is completely, not just identified, but committed to Jesus at the cross. To surrender your life to him and invite the living Jesus to come in. When you do that, you have been born from above, by God, and enter into his kingdom, and heaven becomes your home. Isn't it amazing that Jesus taught all that, and so much more besides, when this fellow came and interrupted Jesus at night, broke in on his space and time, and what Jesus had to say, has become one of the profound statements of the Christian faith in the whole of the Bible. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence here. We keep thanking you, Lord. In no way do we want to take for granted that you are here and you love us as much right now as when you died for us. 
And you're very much alive to us and present to us as you were when you walked from the grave alive. Thank you for all that you said and taught us this very day through your encounter with Nicodemus. Thank you, Lord. We simply say to you, wash me clean. Through your most precious blood shed on the cross. And come into my life. And fill me with your spirit. With yourself. Thank you Lord Jesus. Amen.